Hello and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart. And on today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Benedict Glover and Dr. Catherine Hong from the University of Toronto. And we get into an excellent discussion all about their paper, which is called The Impact of Body Mass Index on the Outcome of Catheter Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Many thanks for all of the emails that you sent me in response to my request for topics. Had some excellent suggestions and they're going to be acted upon and added to the queue. Anybody else wants to email me, please drop me a line either on Twitter at jhfrudd or to my email jhfrudd at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Perhaps we can just start by asking you both to introduce yourself and tell us where you work. My name is Ben Glover and I'm an associate professor in the University of Toronto in Canada. And I work uh, as a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist in the Schulich Heart Centre in Sunnybrook Hospital, which is one of the, the main hospitals in Toronto. And Catherine? Hi, my name is Catherine, and I'm um, also in the Schulich Heart Center at Sunnybrook Hospital. I'm a clinical researcher with Dr. Glover. Fantastic, and thanks both for taking the time to join me today. And you recently published a, a paper in Heart, an original research paper, uh, which is called The Impact of Body Mass Index on the Outcome of Catheter Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation. And I found this a really fascinating study. Perhaps we can start off by you guys telling me a little bit more about what's already known on this subject in terms of when we should be using atrial fibrillation, catheter ablation, and how obesity might affect the outcomes. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as you as you know, atrial fibrillation affects uh, approximately 33 million people worldwide, and the prevalence is increasing as our populations increase and as our methods of detection improve. So we have uh, approximately 350,000 cases diagnosed in Canada and in the United Kingdom, uh, 3% of the population have atrial fibrillation over the age of 35. So this is a very, very common condition and it is the most common arrhythmia which we deal with in clinical practice. Uh, According to the most recent guidelines, catheter ablation is a well-established treatment and a very important treatment for patients who have atrial fibrillation. And it works very well in patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation with symptoms and to a lesser degree in persistent atrial fibrillation. I think one of the key points is we always look for patients who have symptomatic atrial fibrillation and the evidence for catheter ablation in patients without symptoms and atrial fibrillation is really lacking. And I I think the only group that we really look at in patients with no symptoms is is patients with uh, heart failure, where the heart failure is assumed to be secondary to atrial fibrillation. Uh, There is significant data to show that atrial fibrillation improves quality of life and exercise tolerance. There's very limited data in terms of mortality, and there is some data to suggest in patients with atrial fibrillation and heart failure that there is an improved uh, overall mortality, although we're still waiting for further studies, and this is still a somewhat controversial um, uh, statement. Um, Body mass index uh, absolutely affects uh, the outcomes of atrial fibrillation, but the um, but the uh, the data before we looked at this was 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 very conflicted. So that's why we really wanted to look at the this registry, which has uh, thousands of patients. So, what was the aim of your study, Ben and Catherine? 
So as Dr. Glover mentioned, there have been previous studies that have reported variable results with respect to atrial fibrillation type, as well as body mass index on the efficacy and safety of this procedure. Um, so therefore, it still remains uncertain as to which patients receive the most benefit from this procedure. And the overall aim of the study was to evaluate the impact of body mass index at the time of catheter ablation on catheter ablation details, which included procedural duration, intraoperative complications, fluoroscopy time, as well as radiation dose, as pre previous studies have shown that radiation dose is usually higher with increasing body mass index. Um, the most important outcome that we found or that we were investigating was AF recurrence or atrial fibrillation recurrence at 12 months follow-up. Okay, and this wasn't a randomized study, was it? This was observational data from a very large cohort. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about where the, the patient data came from. Yeah, so as you say, this this was not randomized. So this was real-life clinical data. And it was it actually came from the European Observational Registry Program. And there's a number of these programs that run for various uh, arrhythmia conditions under the European Heart Rhythm Association and essentially underneath the umbrella of the European Society of Cardiology. So th this was a uh, a vast study uh, with 3,333 uh, patients who underwent catheter ablation between 2012 and 2015. And it was widespread across Europe. There was uh, 104 centers in 27 different countries, uh, including the United Kingdom and, and Ireland. Uh, and there were 64 university hospitals, 23 community hospitals, and 17 private clinics. So although there was a slight skew, as one would expect, towards the more academic centers, there was a a reasonable representation of the slightly smaller centers. Uh, the, the median number of AF ablations performed per center was 113. And how many patients actually ended up in your study? Yeah, so there was, there was 3,333 patients that were included in the study. Okay, and um, can you briefly talk through the, the kind of definitions used? Were you taking all comers with atrial fibrillation? Did they have to have uh, persistent or paroxysmal and how did you divide up the, the body mass index categories? So we focused in on patients with paroxysmal persistent or long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation according to the ESC guidelines, where paroxysmal atrial fibrillation is defined as an arrhythmia that terminates within one week of onset. Persistent lasts over one week, but up to one year. And long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation lasts more than one year. The fourth group that patients typically have is permanent atrial fibrillation. However, catheter ablation is not recommended generally for these patients. Um, because they are chronically in atrial fibrillation, and therefore this group of patients was not included in this registry. Uh, we also looked at recurrent atrial fibrillation as our main outcome, and recurrent atrial fibrillation was defined as any episode lasting greater than 30 seconds. Um, if this occurred within the first three months, this was known as the blanking period, which I'm sure Dr. Lover will expand on later. Um, but we looked at atrial fibrillation recurrence at 12 months um, beyond this blanking period. And that was your primary outcome, right? Yes. That was our primary outcome, yeah. And, you know, we used the standard definitions for body mass index. So we divided the patients into normal body mass index, which is 18.5 up to just slightly short of 25. Overweight was 25 up to 29.9. And then obese was greater than or equal to 30. Uh, and we do realize that there are limitations with uh, using body mass index. And although it gives us an approximation, uh, probably a, a, a better measure may be waist circumference. 
And you had to use some uh, very fancy statistics, some propensity matching to try to reduce any uh, differences at baseline. Um, are you able to talk a little bit about that? Yes. So we actually use propensity score weighting, which adjusts for certain co-founders um, that would impact the overall primary outcome, which was AF recurrence. So after multivariate adjustment for these certain co-factors, we found that individuals who are obese have a higher incidence of recurrence of atrial fibrillation at 12 months compared to those who had a BMI within normal range or those who were overweight. We actually used a special type of analysis called weighted Cox regression. And when these comparisons were applied to obese patients, we found that they were 1.2 times more likely of having a recurrent atrial fibrillation episode at 12 months as compared to their overweight counterparts. Okay, and you only saw this result in the obese group, right? So the patients with a BMI over 30. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's an overlap between overweight and inverted commas normal weight. Uh, so I, I don't think we saw a dramatic difference, but I think the, the obese uh, actually encompassed morbidly obese. And I think that's where we were getting the more extreme results. If we divided it into morbidly obese, we just didn't have enough numbers to draw a conclusion. But my suspicion is that's what really drove this result was the, the high end of the spectrum in the BMI. Okay, so the greater the BMI a patient has, certainly over 30, the higher the chance of a recurrence of atrial fibrillation during that first, or at one year, I should say. Um, yes. And then you also noted some other interesting findings, I guess some of them not unexpected. Can you talk a little bit about radiation doses and, and procedure times in, in patients who are obese? Yes, of course. So not surprisingly, we found that the type of atrial fibrillation, um, including paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, as well as the post-operative administration of antiarrhythmic drug therapy, also independently predicted AF recurrence at 12 months follow-up. And this is in accordance with previous studies that have been published uh, concerning body mass index and the safety and efficacy of catheter ablation. We also found that BMI coupled with other concomitant conditions at baseline uh, was associated with more increased body mass indexes um, and uh, this included obstructive sleep apnea. This may have been responsible for poor outcomes seen following catheter ablation for the obese patients. As I mentioned previously, radiation exposure as well as the overall procedural duration was significantly higher for over overweight and obese patients compared to normal weight BMI patients. Um, this again is um, in agreement with previous studies that have been published. And finally, which was actually interesting to us, was that there were no differences observed in the incidence of periprocedural complications between obese and overweight patients uh, compared to normal weight patients. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because one might expect uh, more complications as a non-electrophysiology doctor. I, I might expect that, but you didn't find that. We didn't find that. I mean, I think the key findings were that we had uh, increased uh, radiation exposure simply because it requires more x-rays to visualize the catheters within the heart. And we found procedure times were longer. And that, that may have been reflected uh, as a result of increased time to get vascular access. But I think the fact that we didn't find a, a significant uh, difference in complications may have been a reflection of the uh, fact that a lot of the centers that were taken part were pretty high volume centers. So I think uh, as your volume increases, your complication rate decreases in catheter ablation. And I think that probably compensated for the 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 intuitive thought that uh, that complications would increase with body mass index. Yeah, that's good to hear. 
Can you tell me a little bit about the limitations of your study? Clearly, it wasn't a randomized trial, but um, what did you make of those? Right. So there were a few limitations that are important to note. Um, although the data was collected over a wide spectrum of countries, as Dr. Glover mentioned, there were 27 countries involved. The majority of patients were recruited from high volume academic centers, which may have not necessarily reflected the treatment received by patients in lower volume centers. Um, as we know from multiple studies, the outcomes and complications related to catheter ablation procedures are related to the volume in, in these centers. So one might say that it did limit Limit the generalizability of our registry. Um, however, I think Dr. Glover has another limitation that may be important as well. Yeah, I, I think that uh, another limitation which stands out is that uh, given that this was a registry, obviously we didn't want to deviate from, from current clinical practice. So the definition of success and failure was defined as, as 30 seconds or more of atrial fibrillation on a Holter or on an ECG. Uh, now, that was just dependent on the exact time that ECG or holder were performed. So if you had a 35-second episode of atrial fibrillation outside of your clinic follow-up, you still were defined as success. And also, we, we have like uh, issues with the definition of 30 seconds or more uh, atrial fibrillation being um, defined as success. I mean, that, that sets the bar very high for success. And there has been like a, a study show, which showed on, on patients with pacemakers and atrial fibrillation that you can have 30 seconds of atrial fibrillation and you may not have any more atrial fibrillation after that again. So although that might be defined as a failure, clinically we would define that as a success. So I think that's one of the limitations of how do we actually define clinically significant atrial fibrillation. And we, we still don't have a general consensus. So we use the 30 second cutoff, which is really in keeping with the guidelines. But I, I do see that as a as a overall uh, potential limitation in the study. We did want to mention, however, that despite these limitations, this registry still remains the largest international perspective registry to date, evaluating the impact of body mass index on arrhythmia recurrences and outcomes following catheter ablation. And we do, um, although we acknowledge these limitations, we do think that this is an accurate representation of real life data and a very um, valid assessment of body mass index on um, atrial fibrillation outcomes. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, absolutely. So uh, could you guys summarize your, your bullet point takeaway messages for the audience and how your findings might potentially uh, impact your own practice with patients who are, have a higher BMI or impact the guidelines eventually? Yeah, I think that uh, we're looking more and more at lifestyle interventions in patients with atrial fibrillation and uh, risk factors, uh, vascular risk factors. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the way we deal with patients with atrial fibrillation and an elevated body mass index is not adequate at this point in time. And I think we probably need to look at more of a multidisciplinary approach. We need to get dietitians involved. We need to get physiotherapists involved. And I think we need to get psychologists involved in order to reduce patients' overall body fat. Uh, and we need to do everything we can to, to maximize the uh, outcomes of catheter ablation. We're essentially putting patients through procedures with, with risks, and therefore we need to ensure that that procedure has the maximum benefit to the patient. So I think we need to change the way we, we manage patients overall who've got atrial fibrillation. Uh, I, I don't really want this study, though, to delay uh, the catheter ablation for patients who have symptomatic atrial fibrillation while waiting for them to uh, change their lifestyle because that may that may actually impact on the outcome by delaying your procedure and longer duration atrial fibrillation. So I think we have to be cautious with that. Um, but, 
you know, we need to collect more data and we're actually looking at this on, on two different levels at the moment through the Schulich Heart Centre where we work and in association with the Canadian Arrhythmia Network, which is called CANET, which is a, a major organisation in Canada which funds uh, arrhythmia research across all the provinces and all the centres. And we're trying to examine what the current physical activity levels are of patients. Um, and we're collecting this data through a registry and we're also, we have a, our own study, which is ongoing, called the CAFPA study, uh, where we're looking at physical activity levels in patients before and after ablation. So we're really trying to collect more data to see how we can um, alter the way we treat our patients outside of the ablation arena. Fantastic. Well, it's a, a really interesting study and it will be uh, available for free uh, for a few weeks after the release of this podcast. And I just want to finish by thanking you both for taking the time to join me today. Well, thank you very thank much. You, James. Thank you.